This is an ABC podcast. Everyone, I want you to take a look at the man in this picture. Biggest ever reduction in the volume of carbon. Find the footage, but I've always... Something about Jordan 1s when they're fresh out the box. I'm sitting on my couch, I'm in my lounge room, and I'm flicking through television channels. I seem to be doing a lot more of that these days. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome, as always, to Future Tense. When I got a new set-top box recently, it came with a bundle of international news channels, English-language ones. There's CNN and BBC and France 24, and there's also this one. Welcome to CGTN Observes. This week, events unfolding in two Chinese cities could change 5G history. In Beijing, delegates from all over China are attending... It looks just like the others. It has the same feel as all of the other 24-hour news channels, even the same sort of music and graphics. CGTN is committed to reporting global news from a Chinese perspective and telling stories from China for a global audience. But it's different. CGTN stands for China Global Television Network, and it's far from objective in its so-called reporting. Everything that runs on CGTN is tightly controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Now, I mention all of this because our first guest today is Philip Howard, who heads the Oxford Internet Institute at Oxford University, and whose newly published book is called Lie Machines. Since early April, Professor Howard and his team have been monitoring the COVID-19-related misinformation generated by outlets like CGTN, ones that are owned and operated by authoritarian regimes. They've also been exploring how that misinformation is then spread widely on social media. Philip Howard. Well, the major players are Russia and China. Both governments have significant media outlets. And in the last few years, they've uh, expanded to be working in English. So they produce significant amounts of content in English. And the audience for their content, they hope, is those of us living in, in Western democracies who are worried about COVID and its impact on our lives. What sort of information are they spreading? Well, there's two or three themes that are common to what both governments try to put out. They encourage us all to doubt our democracies, to think that our elected leaders, our, our systems of running elections, won't save us, won't support us, and can't make the tough decisions that are needed in a public health crisis. So the first major theme is about undermining our trust in democracy and public institutions. The second theme seems to be about promoting their own science. So China will solve the crisis, and, and Russian scientists are leading the science on finding a cure. So it's very much a, a self-promotion message. The third message seems to be about aid. So sending masks to Washington, D.C., or sending doctors to Italy to help. These small projects demonstrate how authoritarian regimes are doing so well that they can give assistance to uh, the weak, weaker democracies. And the amount of material that uh, China and Russia, and to a lesser extent, you identify Iran and Turkey, the amount of material that they generate accounts for roughly a third of all the junk news that social media users engage with. Is that correct? That's correct. It's, it's an immense amount of content. We started tracking things on a weekly basis, and over the last few weeks, we can estimate that content from Russia Today and Sputnik and CGTN, the Chinese network, reaches a billion 
social media user accounts. Now, we know from our research that many of those accounts are duds, they're empties, they're duplicates created by those governments to try to amplify their own output. But it's still it's a theoretical reach across Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, multiple platforms. It's quite a large distribution system. Is it possible to know how influential their social media misinformation is? It's very hard for us to do statistical models on how a particular story will have a particular impact on what choices people make. But we do know, we did a multi-country study recently where we measured the number of people who think the COVID-19 virus was made in a lab, and it's upwards of a quarter of the, the population in uh, seven different countries that we studied. And that's one of the stories that uh, China in particular has tried to propagate. It's difficult to measure the impact. I would say that anything that gets us to doubt our public health officials and maybe come out of lockdown before we really should, that's a serious consequence. And of course, with social media, sharing is what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, how much sharing do they achieve? How much engagement do they get? With comparison, say, to mainstream media outlets like the BBC, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Mm -hmm. those kind of organisations. Well, we found that they're pretty competitive. In part, it's because the the headlines are more sensational. You know, they use lots of exclamation marks and they use uh, pictures taken out of context. And on average, week to week, they will reach more people. They'll have a, a wider audience and that audience will engage more than audiences for CBC, ABC. We've done a number of different uh, comparison points. I think one of the one of the challenges is that this content, when it's produced, is designed to be sensationalist, right? It's, it's conspiratorial, it's extremist. And so not everyone goes looking for that kind of content, but when they find it, they're much more likely to share it with their friends, pass it along to family. And that becomes part of the problem, of course. As I understand it, this ongoing research that your institute is doing is looking at Facebook and Twitter. What does all of that tell us about the ability of those major social media sites to screen out and remove propaganda and deliberate misinformation? Well, clearly they have a central role and they have since 2016. They're the major platforms for public life. This is where public conversations happen these days. Increasingly, it's where people get their news and most people most of the time don't talk about politics on social media. But in times of a global pandemic, they will. I should say one of the things that's changed in the last few years, especially since I finished the recent book research, is that much more of the misinformation has moved on to Instagram. So Facebook, Twitter, these are platforms for uh, an over 30 crowd um, and uh, professionals and pundits and journalists. I think younger people are using uh, TikTok and WhatsApp and Instagram platforms that support visual misinformation, and that visual misinformation is even harder to track and analyse. Now, we started by talking about the English language news services, but of course, that all comes on top of the misinformation that comes from their shadowy propaganda units and troll farms, those kind of things, doesn't it? Yes, yes, there's an additional layer. Uh, Sometimes those organisations are uh, simply military units, that have been retasked to do social media propagation. Sometimes they're spin-off firms. There's a wide variety of models, but yes, there's a, an extra industry of firms, political communication consultants, who uh, push these messages around. Now, turning to your book, Lie Machines, one of the points that you make in that is that we're not just talking about these state-based actors. We're not just talking about a few bad actors, if you like. That misinformation these lying machines, this is a global industry, a global phenomenon involving many democracies as well. 
That's very true. Last summer, we found misinformation, organized misinformation campaigns operating in well over 70 countries. In authoritarian regimes, these tend to be the, you know, the ruling elites using social media to manage their own population or to try to influence populations in other countries. But in democracies, it's actually regular politicians, industry lobbyists who are paying for these services. And it's gone from being an industry that was something your your spooks did, right? Or your information operations would have worked on misinformation. Now it's a, a service from the major um, PR firms. The preface to your book begins with the social media summit that was held at the White House in 2019. Could I get you to tell us about the significance of that event? Yes, this was one of a number of events that President Trump has held over the years in which instead of inviting professional journalists and the widely recognized, widely accredited mainstream professional outlets to the White House for a briefing, he invited the most extremist outlets, uh, the, the people who write online only. They're often independents, don't have a large organization. They push extremist, white supremacist, uh, incredibly racist and sexist content. And he invited them to the White House to celebrate their role in supporting public debate. And it was an important event because it signals how well, how dependent he is as a public figure on those kinds of actors for getting his information out to his base. And has the nature of the Trump presidency, has that normalised the use of, of blatant disinformation campaigns within mainstream politics in, in Western democracies? Or does he really, are we really still talking about him in the United States? I would say that there are few advanced democracies that have really replicated these problems to the same degree that they exist in the US. I can't think of actually, you know, between Canada and Oz and the UK, there's other public figures who are populist, certainly. And across Europe, there are populist figures. But there's so much misinformation coming out of the White House that at this point, most other countries are having to deal with it. The term lie machine that you use as the title of the book, could I get you to define that for us? What do you mean by a lie machine? What does that actually constitute? Well, I use the term lie machine to refer to both the social side and the technical side of distributing misinformation. And in the sense, I don't think you can analyze modern politics without both parts, right? It takes a team of individuals who've been paid to generate stories and attack female politicians or bring down journalists. It takes that team to generate content, but then it takes the algorithms of social media firms to take the content and distribute it. And so the line machine involves a production system, a distribution system, a marketing system to make sure that you will get the content that's going to activate you or that you will get the content that'll discourage you from showing up on voting day. It's that targeting mechanism that makes misinformation, fake news, so powerful. And just picking up on the point that you made there, this is a social problem, isn't it? Not just a technological phenomenon, because we do tend to, when we think about misinformation, political misinformation, we do tend to focus often on the technology side of it and sometimes forget the social aspect, don't we? Absolutely. It's social and technical. There's also a behavioral side to this. So we all have our own cognitive biases and social media platforms are designed to take advantage of those biases. So we, we don't like to encounter new information that makes some previous decision we've made look like a bad decision. We won't actively search out for information that challenges us. 
there's a whole series of these cognitive biases and platforms are designed to provide uh, exciting content that reinforces what we believe in. And so we don't tend to get exposed. We don't tend to see points of consensus emerge from across our networks. And we tend to uh, see the sort of the dreck, the worst of the content. Russia's famous Internet Research Agency began formal operations in 2012. And you look at that in your book. Was that really the beginning of the sophisticated and widespread propaganda and misinformation practice that you and your institute call computational propaganda? Yes, uh, that was the starting point of what we call computational propaganda, because that was the moment where a significant organization specifically started using social media platforms to direct news stories to particular users. There's a long history to propaganda, right? But it's it's usually been in major international crises during wars, and it's usually governments that generate propaganda, have been generating propaganda, and they broadcast it to entire publics. The IRA was innovative in that the Russian state invested deeply in targeted misinformation that would put a specific story into a narrow community. And that's a model that, unfortunately, many other authoritarian governments have now copied. And today on Future Tense, we're talking to Professor Philip Howard, who's the director of the Oxford Internet Institute and author of Lie Machines. Looking ahead, you express concerns about what you call the science of marketing lies, that that's going to continue to grow. We've only really just started to see it. And you express real fears about the development of AI-generated propaganda. Just explain to us AI-generated propaganda, how that would be different from the chatbots that are used today and, and what it will mean for the situation in the future. Today's chatbots are fairly simple, right? They take a small amount of pre-programmed text. If you tweet or you push something on Instagram that uses a certain hashtag, these bots, these chatbots can be programmed simply to take the text and tweet it back to you, send it back to you. You can enter into short conversation with bots, but many of us can detect when we're engaged with a bot, you know, we end the conversation fairly quickly. AI-generated misinformation would be much more complex. It might look at data from your credit card records or your demographic background, make some guesses as to what kinds of voices you might want to see, what kind of face you might respond well to, generate that face and deepen that voice or raise the pitch of the voice and deliver a political message to you that, you know, that we would guess would have some serious impact and that would activate you to draw into politics or perhaps to stay home on election day. These kinds of technologies don't yet exist, but the trend lines suggest that they're on their way. These days, a good marketing analyst can predict the mood of an individual three months out based on their Gmail traffic. The behavioral models for happiness are now, general happiness, are now quite complex and can see well down the road. So if a political consultant knows that an election is three months away or needs to find out when to call an election, they can use these models to figure out when the population will be most happy, when not to call an election. And that kind of gaming the system, I think, will be will, will weaken democracy. And what does that do to our sense of citizenship, the sense that we are informed members of a society and make decisions at election times? Because clearly, the decisions that we're making on all sorts of things in our lives that generate data, that's also feeding into this, this whole lie machine phenomenon, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And you've put your finger on it there. The real currency for citizenship now is our data. It's the trail of information that we leave behind us when we make our credit card purchases, when we do a little shopping online or do any kind of search. That content, that data is what is used to make political inferences about us now. There used to be census data or surveys that uh, political figures would run. Now it's much more detailed and nuanced and behavioral. Now, the real challenge for democracy is that the best data on public problems, you know, what we need, what we want, doesn't sit with the public. It sits in Silicon Valley. It doesn't sit with the national library system or sit with the university researchers or independent journalists. It sits in Silicon Valley. So the solution has to involve breaking that monopoly of data, figuring out how to share the best data on public life with the public itself. I should also say, it's not clear that all the data we've generated over our lives is being useful to anyone. But we do know that if you own a Samsung smart TV, Samsung has some data on you and Sony has some data on you too. And if you've been video gaming, Microsoft on Xbox, Microsoft has that data. So there's the significant swaths of information about our behavior that other people have and uh, can make inferences from. So going to that point, do we sometimes perhaps incorrectly assume that these kinds of misinformation campaigns are more important in our deliberations than they actually are? Yes, it's very difficult to know what percentage of the population believes something that's patently false. What we do know is that there's a long tail to these effects. So in the US, there was a story in the 2016 election that Hillary Clinton was involved in a pedophilia ring in a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. You can still survey the number of adults who think that something was going on in that pizzeria. So the real issue is not that everyone shares some misunderstanding of uh, public life. The problem is that a few percentage points of people doubt or vote in a strange way because they've heard some rumor. And when elections are close, you know, and a few percentage points makes a difference between a government taking office or falling and having to call another election, that makes a big difference. And of course, we have a, a very important election coming up toward the end of this year in the United States. It's sometimes easy to forget that it's on the horizon mm. because of the coronavirus crisis. Look ahead to that and tell us what you see. I mean, the use of misinformation during 2016 was incredibly controversial. Do you see significant problems for this year's campaign? I do. In 2016, our research was able to show that significant volumes of the misinformation were actually targeted at swing states. So the audience for misinformation isn't the average American voter or the entire country. It's actually targeted misinformation for the states where the voting's close. I would guess that the same thing will happen in 2020. The other thing we're anticipating for the work we do here at Oxford is that some of this misinformation will be about voter suppression. And whether you're liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat, most people who believe in the election process would want to discourage voter suppression techniques. You, you may have seen these messages. The voting day has changed at the very last minute, so you don't need to vote. Or um, uh, your favorite candidate passed away over the weekend and, and isn't actually running, so there's no point in voting. These kinds of messages are usually targeted at particular voters to try to get them to stay home. And one of my fears is that that'll be linked to COVID, perhaps, in November 2020, and that might have an effect on voter turnout on election day. 
And importantly, that kind of misinformation and manipulation, a lot of that's going to be homegrown, isn't it? I mean, there is a tendency with the United States to think it's all the Russians. Yes. One of the really unfortunate trends we've seen over the last few years is that these tricks developed in Russia have actually migrated. The techniques are being picked up by political consultants in other countries. At first, these were techniques that dictators used to help control their own population. Then we saw them, these techniques being used by ruling elites to try to push public opinion in other countries and democracies. And now it's it's homegrown. It's a white supremacist. It's usually the far right, and I, and I don't just I don't mean conservatives. I mean extremist right wing parties that will pick up these strategies and uh, use them domestically. And just to finish off, I mean, you say toward the end of your book that you are optimistic about the future. You don't believe that self-regulation with regard to social media is going to work, but you do say that the answer is more social media, not less. How should we understand that? Well, I don't think we can ever take back Facebook or undo Instagram. We're not going to give up our mobile phones and we're not going to surrender Twitter. I think the best we can hope for is that the firms will do more to manage the most ridiculous forms of misinformation that are spreading. They've been pretty proactive, I'd have to say. They During elections for the last three or four years, they were slow moving depending on the country. They didn't always implement good changes in in a timely way, but they have been pretty proactive around COVID. And I would hope that they keep up that energy when it comes to the November 2020 election. Professor Philip Howard, Director of the Oxford Internet Institute and author of Lie Machines, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. And the subtitle for that book, incidentally, is How to Save Democracy from Troll Armies, Deceitful Robots, Junk News Operations and Political Operatives. It's published by Yale University Press. This is Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I'm Anthony Fennell. Have you heard about a new piece of legislation called the International Production Orders Bill 2020? I'm guessing most of you haven't. It was introduced into the Australian Parliament in March, and its importance seems to have been overshadowed, like most things, by the coronavirus. The bill is currently before the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Now, the International Civil Liberties and Technology Coalition believes this new legislation could have an impact on the human rights of Australian citizens if passed in its current form. The coalition includes tech companies like Apple, Microsoft and Google, as well as civil society organisations like the Freedom of the Press Foundation, Human Rights Watch and Privacy International. Sharon Bradford-Franklin is the coalition's spokesperson. The International Production Orders Bill is legislation that Australia is trying to enact in order to qualify Australia to enter into an agreement with the United States under a US law called the Cloud Act. The Cloud Act sets up a structure that would allow the two countries to bypass a very time-consuming and cumbersome process that exists under current law when one country wants to seek electronic communications data held by providers in the other country. To illustrate what I'm talking about, if Australian law enforcement authorities want to seek information from someone's, say, Gmail account, that is data that is held by Google, an American company located in the United States. 
Under current legal structures, Australian authorities need to submit a request with the United States government under something called a mutual legal assistance treaty. And it's a government to government request and it's rights protective, but it is very time consuming and cumbersome. The Cloud Act would set up a structure so that once a bilateral agreement between the United States and Australia were in effect, Australian authorities could make that request directly to Google. So this arrangement, this is about security, isn't it? This is about making it easier for our police, our intelligence agencies. Is that correct? The Cloud Act structure covers evidence in serious crimes, including terrorism. So it's really for um, criminal investigations by Australian authorities and reciprocally by the United States. The agreement would also allow United States authorities to make requests to any providers in Australia. Now, your organisation is part of this International Civil Liberties and Technology Coalition, and you've expressed to the Parliamentary Committee, in fact, you've testified to the Parliamentary Committee about the human rights concerns that you and other organisations have. Could I get you to explain the concerns? So, under the US Cloud Act, it authorises the United States to enter into agreements with other countries like Australia to, as I noted earlier, bypass the mutual legal assistance treaty process. The first step is that the U.S. Attorney General and Secretary of State have to certify that the other country meets a series of factors demonstrating robust protections for privacy and civil liberties and respect for human rights. Then the two countries negotiate a bilateral executive agreement, and the Cloud Act sets out some minimum criteria for these agreements. So our coalition has raised four concerns regarding why we believe that the draft Australian legislation is not adequate to provide the robust level of safeguards that are needed. The first is that the bill fails to ensure prior judicial review under a robust legal standard. So this is a very important safeguard because these agreements are designed to replace the judicial review that occurs under existing law in the home country. So right now, if Australia were to make a request to the US, our Justice Department and our US courts would evaluate that request and vice versa. If the United States made a request to Australia, your courts would evaluate that request. So we need to make sure that there is, before this request goes directly to a provider, that there are safeguards of prior independent review, and that's a critical safeguard in international human rights law. Also, that it needs to be under a robust standard, and we have outlined why we believe that the International Production Orders Bill does not meet that standard. Second, we have outlined how the Australian legislation is inadequate in providing notice and transparency A key safeguard is that criminal defendants should receive notice of uh, evidence that is being used against them, and there is no procedure in the Australian law to require the government to provide that notice, not even on a delayed basis after uh, the investigation is completed. Third, the Australian bill makes these orders compulsory, and the Cloud Act structure Really, one safeguard that is in there is that those requests directly to the providers should be voluntary and those companies should have the ability to turn down inappropriate requests. And finally, 
the Australian legislation does not provide an adequate opportunity for providers to challenge the requests. And it is really important as a safeguard that there be a clear and robust mechanism for providers to challenge inappropriate and overbroad requests. If your concerns are taken on by the parliamentary committee, what sort of difference will that make to this mechanism? I mean, will, will it still be able to operate? Absolutely. Under the Cloud Act, Australia and the United States would be able to enter into a bilateral agreement. And if our recommendations are taken to account so that Australian domestic law provides robust safeguards for individual rights, that will ensure that under the operation of this Cloud Act agreement, rights are not being violated. So the review provided by Australian authorities, ideally and importantly, prior judicial review under robust standard is substituting for the review that would now be performed by the U.S. Justice Department and U.S. courts. And it's also important that those safeguards work in the opposite direction because this is a reciprocal agreement that would also allow the U.S. to make demands of Australian providers. Sharon Bradford Franklin, the Director of Surveillance and Cybersecurity Policy for the Open Technology Institute at the think tank New America. And as mentioned earlier, that bill is currently before the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. That's Future Tense for another week. My thanks, as always, to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.